As you're seated, you can go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 6 this morning. Luke chapter 6, verse 27. And as you get to the text for today, I want to get out in front of this and just let you know this is not a Mother's Day sermon. Um, And hopefully you'll recognize that as you get to our text. Uh, We are just continuing our study through Luke, and we are excited to do that this morning as we get into Luke chapter 6, verse 27. Uh, Two weeks ago, we spent time in Luke chapter 6, where Jesus taught that those who have seen their need as hungry and desperate and poor and hurting are the blessed. Those who recognize their need truly are blessed as they rest in Jesus. And now as he continues to teach, he's showing that the blessed are to view everything else differently in the kingdom of God. Every single thing we do and take part in and look at and the ways we interact with the world is different now. Our priorities are different, our pursuits are different, our relationships are different. Even the way we view our enemies is different. I think I was chosen to preach this passage today because I'm a Michigan fan living in Ohio just an hour from Columbus, in the middle of the worst record in Michigan football history here recently. But that's probably not what Jesus is getting at here primarily. So that will not be an application of the text. But Jesus continues the sermon that we looked at two weeks ago here in verse 27, a sermon that now turns its attention to the ways we live in relationship together. The ways we live in relationships in a broken world, sinful people in relationship with other sinful people. Let's look at Luke chapter 6. We'll read 27 through 36. God's word says this. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good, and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So immediately after Jesus gives these four woes in 24 to 26, Jesus says, but I say to you who hear. So woe to you who are rich, woe to you who are full now, who laugh now when people speak well of you, but I say to you who hear. We know that there are many gathered listening. Some were his disciples. There was a great multitude, it says in verse 17, back a little earlier in the chapter. So there are many physically hearing Jesus speak. But whether or not they are truly listening and receiving will be shown through their obedience. And right away, Jesus commands those truly listening 
to do something, those who are going to listen, those who are taking heed of what Jesus is saying, to do something. This is actually the very first command, direct command we see Jesus give in Luke's gospel. And the very first command he gives is to love their enemies. He tells them to love their enemies. His first command to them teaches them then about an unnatural love that we see in in verses 27 to 31. doesn't get any more unnatural than what Jesus is telling them to do here. Love your enemies. Love those that are the absolute hardest to love. I think one of the first questions many ask when reading a text like this is, well, who is my enemy? Sometimes for noble reasons, sometimes for less noble reasons. We're trying to just get that category as small as possible. But it's the same way we ask, who's my neighbor, when we're told to love our neighbor. And I think in the same way that our neighbor is far more than just the person who lives next door, our enemy is far more than just our arch rival, the bully on the playground, the gossip, the North Korean government. Those are, the category of enemy oftentimes in our mind is much smaller, I think, than what even Jesus is getting at. An enemy is, by definition, somebody that we are experiencing alienation from. The relationship is broken. There are lots of reasons for that. Somebody who's against us, somebody whose hostility prevents us from responding with love and affection. It's illustrated by Jesus in this text as someone opposed to you, someone who hates you, someone who curses you, abuses you, insults you, takes from you without caring about you doesn't love you well, doesn't give you much, doesn't benefit you. And that certainly points to those extreme enemies. Jesus has those in mind as well, those that persecute you for the faith, those that gossip against you. But I also think this whole idea of loving our enemies moves beyond just those extreme examples of an enemy. As you can imagine, many people at one time or another fit into this type of definition. Also remember that these commands are on the heels of these blessings and woes about being hated, about people speaking well of you and ill of you. And now he's telling them what a proper response in this world is to that type of relationship. So the sin that that causes allies to become enemies, that causes friction and opposition and, and being opposed to one another in so many different ways, And God commands his people to love their enemies, despite all of that friction, despite all of that opposition. So this first command from Jesus is crucial because it calls us to live and to love in an unnatural way that changes the way we interact with one another, specifically those who are opposed to us. So this type of love Jesus describes is defined by doing good to those that you have no natural desire to do good towards. I hope you're already thinking of a few people that come to mind that that's a struggle for you, to do good to those people. This love Jesus commands is not waiting around until a good feeling towards that person shows up. It's not waiting for the other person to take the first step towards you. It is a love that is shown off through the way you treat them. It is an action towards 
those opposed to you. This is love extended to those who make your life difficult, to those that make your life miserable even at times. This is such a countercultural love that Jesus is laying out for his followers. This is so opposed to every inclination in us when we are confronted with these types of people. And it extends to all types of enemies, personal enemies, religious enemies, political enemies, enemies you have never met, but you have a growing bitterness towards online or in culture. Even, I believe, enemies within your own home on certain days of the week. Jesus isn't calling you to feel love for them. He's calling you to do love for them, to take action for their benefit. When that person treats you like an enemy, you respond by treating them like a friend. That's exactly what Jesus says here. He says, love your enemies. He says, do good. He says, bless, pray for all actions we're taking. Give them the other cheek. Give them your jacket. Give things away. Don't worry about if you get it back. All of these are actions that show off the love of God. Shows off that you love God more than you love yourself and your stuff and your comfort. It's living as if you are not your own and this world is not your home. That's one of the things I think this sermon from Jesus is all about. And that has significant impact on our relationships as the church. You and I may not be able to control how we feel about people, but we certainly can control what we do with those feelings. Jesus is saying here that the Christian ethic is not built on retaliation, vengeance, about something else entirely. Verse 28 says, bless those who curse you. So this is the idea that you don't want the same things for them that they want for you. You don't respond in kind to what they desire for you. Verse 28 also says, pray for those who abuse you. This is asking God maybe to bring justice where necessary, but also to save and sanctify that person. To shower them with his grace so they will see him. They will see his glory. They will love him. You pray that for them. Verse 29 says, turn the other cheek, which most likely is referring to a personal insult. So don't fight for your own dignity at all costs. Doing whatever you can to get vengeance. It's not yours. It's letting an ultimate reality change the way you respond to criticism and insult. Spurgeon once said, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you're worse than he thinks you to be. This ultimate perspective of who you are and who God is and and how you even respond to insult, criticism. Verses 29 and 30 says, if someone takes your cloak, give them your tunic also. Give to everyone who begs from you. Don't demand your stuff back. So this is the idea of of sacrificing for others, of not loving your stuff more than you love people. We must be generous, vulnerable people, even to our enemies. Jesus starts here with our enemies. And let me clarify what 
Jesus gives us here, I believe, our illustrations. It's a lot like the wisdom literature, what you would read in Proverbs, perhaps. They're not to be applied literally without wise exceptions. He's giving illustrations of what the virtuous life looks like, what it looks like to live as people of Jesus, as people of a different kingdom. We have 66 books to help us inform our thinking on this, not just one paragraph. So in Luke 6.30, Jesus is really saying that the spirit of the Christ follower that should characterize us is a willingness to give. Sacrificial giving. But of course there are limits that our own wisdom must give us. So the command to turn the other cheek doesn't apply to the situation of rescuing a child from abuse. The example of giving to those who beg doesn't mean if you ask for my car keys after the service that I'm going to hand them over to you. Right? There's wisdom that dictates how we apply these principles and what Jesus is getting at here. There's a broader picture he's trying to paint and he's giving us examples of what that looks like. This is important because Jesus is commanding us, he's giving us a vision of true virtue of how to live in this world as people who recognize that this is not our home, that we are not our own. Jesus not only commands us in this way of operating and loving, though, he also models this. He is the perfect model of this virtue. He, of all people, did not retaliate against evil done to him. Jesus did not seek his own vengeance, but he entrusted himself to the Father. Jesus did not come here to be served and accumulate, but to serve and to give away. 1 John 4 reminds us of this pattern set by Jesus, and we are to imitate him in this love, this unnatural love. Verse 7, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Even as Jesus commands our enemies. But let's be honest, I mean, we want justice, we want vengeance, we want vindication now, we want all that now. We want what we have coming to us, and and we want people to be put in their place. That's our natural response. God gave me another example of that just this week, as I was on a run, and there was a lady with a dog on the sidewalk, maybe 30 feet in front of me. And I was, you know, as you approach people, sometimes you try to run harder so that they hear your feet and maybe turn around and notice that you're coming. She did not hear me. And I got within about 20 feet and I was just about to say something to her, just about to give her a heads up, you know, on the left or whatever. And her dog heard me, started freaking out. She started freaking out, ran over into the grass. You know, I ran by, said, thank you. And then as I got past her, she said, warn us, you know, kind of yelled at me, warn us. And let me tell you, it didn't take long for sin to show up in my heart in that moment, right? All of the things I wanted to say to her, describe to her like, hey, no, I was about to say something. Even the thought 
for a second came in my mind, maybe I should walk back and just let her know I was going to say something. Sorry about that. But my whole motivation in that would have been to, to prove that I was not in the wrong. My motivation was not love for her. It was love for self and how I could vindicate myself in that moment. That was my natural reaction to that silly situation on a sidewalk, right, is is vengeance. I want to be vindicated here. I want this lady to know that I was not in the wrong by not yelling from three miles down the street at her, right? Even you can hear it in my voice now. I'm still vindicating myself. (laughs) But we see this desire for vengeance all around us and in us, right, on the playground when a kid that gets pushed pushes back. When we respond to hurt in relationships with the silent treatment, or a verbal lashing out, and in the teenager that cuts off everyone in their life that doesn't treat them the way they want to be treated. I was viewing that situation with me at the center, and this dog walker was in the way of me being righteous. I loved being right in that moment more than I loved the stranger. And yes, I I rest in Christ's work for me in spite of that moment. I slept well that night, but moments like that should grieve us because it grieves God. It should be a a moment for me to repent and, and to love others well because this is no casual call from Jesus here to love our enemies. This is so unnatural. To live like this, we're going to have to go to war against our flesh, go to war against our normal ways of loving people. And the examples that Jesus gives here of the unnatural love may seem harsh to us. Like, why would we do that? That makes no sense. Why would we live like that? We, gotta, we can't be doormats. We've got to stand up for ourselves. But he's trying to paint for us a picture of what it looks like to live as kingdom people. And this happens through an unnatural love, a love seen through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And a love that he calls his disciples to live out. So there's an unnatural love. But I think that also shows itself often in an unnatural response. Which we've already seen a little bit in those first few verses. But the natural response for all humanity is to love those that love us. To love people because of what we get from loving them. Because of what we benefit now or may benefit from one day. Even if we don't get it directly from them, we often love people because of what may come to us from someone else seeing that love. We, we distort things so quickly and easily. It's really easy for me to show my kids love when they are obeying me, when they're not whining, when they're sitting in the other room quietly reading a book. Real easy for me to shower them with love, to do good towards them. But Jesus teaches that love like that, a response to people like that is completely natural, and sinners do it just as well as we do, or Gentiles or unbelievers do it just as well as we do, sometimes even better than we do. But the response of the follower of Jesus to relationships is so unnatural in the way he calls us to respond. It's a response that loves those who don't love you. To love those who don't give in return. To love those who offer you nothing. 
Jesus says again, if you love those who love you, what benefits that to you? For even sinners do do the same. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners. This is all beyond our ordinary instinct as human beings. The easiest, most natural response is to hate those who hate you. To treat them the way they treat you. To curse those who curse you. To abuse those who abuse you. To respond in anger to those who are angry at you. Loving those who outwardly love you already, who you're already brothers and sisters with, is a righteousness that does not even rise above the tax collector, the Gentile, Jesus is saying. It's a love that only loves because of what you're getting out of the relationship. So this is a distinct fruit in the Christian life. This should mark us and it sets us apart as followers of Christ, this type of ethic. As a transformed people of God, when we love like God, we we demonstrate our identity as his children. People that have received the love and mercy of God. We show that off when we love our enemies, when we love those that are opposed to us. The God whose love for his enemies is clear as he pursues his enemies, as he saves his enemies, as he gave his son, not for those who loved him, but for his enemies, for sinners. Romans 5, 6 to 8 reads, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There isn't much better way to show off the mercy of God than by being a merciful people, by loving others even if they are opposed and against us. Think about all the places in your life where sin makes it difficult to live in relationship with other people. You don't have to think very hard. Let's just even start with online interactions. One author wrote, an early promise of social media was that it would help us make friends, but as it matured, it seems better suited to help us make enemies. And it has become a place where the disgruntled go, where the opinionated go, the divisive. And in many ways, it's furthered the divide between us and our enemies. And it collects us with those who think like us, and it pushes us away from those who disagree with us. Even good things have become points of contention and argument and hatred. And it often hinders our love for our enemies. Because people online become vilified. It becomes hard to even scroll through a news feed without some seed of bitterness or anger being sown in that moment. It's easy to love those that have your opinions and post what you think they should post. Even sinners do that. We can view our neighbors as the enemy. And instead of loving them, we complain about their lack of yard upkeep and how it destroys the look of the neighborhood. 
or how their lack of concern over the look of their house kills the housing market in my area. It's easy to do good to those that have your same housing and landscaping convictions. Even sinners do that. We have political enemies, mask and vaccine enemies. It's easy to give grace to those that think like you on these issues. Even sinners do that. I think one of the the most often missed implications of this is within one of the most intimate relationships that God has given to some in this room. One article reads, sometimes love your enemy even means love your spouse. The article then goes on to talk about some of the implications that we get from 32 to 34, about what that type of love looks like. I want to read just a few lines from this article. It says, there's nothing extraordinary about loving people who love you back. And really, that's the basis of what passes for love in so many relationships. It's the attitude of, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. And what that really means is, I'll scratch your back as long as you scratch mine. As long as that person does what's good for you, you'll do what's good for them. But as soon as they stop doing what's good for you, you will stop doing what's good for them. In other scenarios, you might act like you've done some great act of generosity, But it's not generous at all if you're thinking more of what you get from the transaction than you're thinking of the good you can do. That's not love, but greed. Because it's essentially keeping a record of transactions to ensure you come out ahead. He writes later, I have long observed that the major cause of conflict between spouses is a failure of, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. It's a failure to love selflessly. We can very quickly let our marriages slide into a kind of transactional relationship where instead of thinking first about what we can give, we think first about what we can get. We give so we can get back and give only to the degree we receive. We keep a tally of all our spouse has done for us and we compare it and begin to feel sorry for ourselves when we determine the equation favors them. And I hope you see how what's described here can make its way into almost any relationship. You don't have to be married to understand that dynamic. And you don't have to be persecuted to understand that dynamic. To love like Jesus is describing, to respond like Jesus is admonishing us is not natural, but it is to make its way into every relationship we have. Every relationship we have involves sin and friction and opposition and an opportunity to display the mercy of the Father. Now, I wouldn't suggest you go home and call your spouse the enemy, but I do believe we must begin to understand that loving them only when they love us well is not really love. So in our interactions, I think even this word enemy sometimes can throw us off because, again, we begin to think about just a certain category of people. But we need to think about our interactions, and if in our love, it's just limited to interactions that favor us or to people just like us with our interests, our skin color, our education level, our political party, similar sports interests. If we find ourselves doing good for only those that benefit us, we are loving, but mostly we're loving ourselves. 
However, the love of God is not self-interested. It is selfless. Sacrificial. God-like love includes our enemies who wrong and abuse us, who are opposed to us. This is how Christian love works. That's what the gospel is all about. It's about enemies. It's about us. People who were pursued and adopted. And it was only then that we laid down our weapons. That we went from enemies to friends to sons and daughters of God. And Jesus is commanding us to love like that. To look for opportunities to show off the love we have received. One author shares the story of being in a small group of men where a friend of his was accused and demeaned. The friend was silent at the time, but after reflection and prayer, he decided to move towards his accuser rather than move away or against him. When they met, his friend raised the concerns, and the accuser immediately repented and asked for forgiveness from him. You are the better man, he said. His friend was not aiming to be the better man. His goal was to serve the church and unite a fragmented relationship. His strategy was the path of loving his enemy and humility, and the Spirit used that in the man's life. Just think, just imagine what it would look like for us to, to look for ways to respond with this kind of unnatural love towards those that are opposed to us, to those that don't benefit us. We're called to an unnatural love and an unnatural response. And then lastly, we have an unnatural motivation. So let's look at second half of verse 35 again. It says, And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So first, your reward will be great. This is an unnatural motivation because it's not immediate. It's not what you see in the moment. This means your circumstances might not be great immediately or even on this earth. This reflects back to verse 22, actually, in the Beatitudes, where he says, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Again, it's a kingdom mindset. It, it's not focused on what can be gained here, first and foremost. Jesus says, as kingdom citizens, you're blessed in the ways that matter most for all eternity. That's why you're called to live this way. Set your hope in, in me instead of chasing after things of this earth. Second, you will be sons of the Most High. So living this way may mean you miss out again on some things here. You may lack here from an earthly perspective, but your reward will be great. You may not get the praise of men. You may not get the status that your heart wants. But you are adopted into the family of the Most High God. Forever, you are a child of God. Motivating us with that, showing us what is to come, what matters most above all of the things that we get caught up in that cause us to respond in the ways that our enemies treat us. And that father that you are now a child of is merciful, it tells us at the very end of this section. And we know he's merciful. Matthew 5.45 says he makes sun rise on the evil and on the good. 
sends rain on the just and the unjust. Psalm 103, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. He is merciful. Ephesians 4, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So because you are a child of the Most High God, because you are a child of the Father who is merciful, you are to imitate Him in this way. God is kind to people who are unthankful. God is kind to evil, and He calls us to the same. He gives all kinds of benefits to all kinds of people, even those that are opposed to Him. And He has been most merciful to us by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So again, I hope you can see that all of what Jesus is talking about here is not just defined by this one section. There is so much that informs our thinking about what Jesus is getting at. He's trying to teach his people what it looks like to model, to imitate what he has done for us, who he is, the type of father that he is. So the thing that we need to learn maybe more than anything else is, is who God is, who the Father is, to understand the character of God because we're called to reflect that, to see it and to reflect it. We're not merciful anymore when we forget the mercy we've received. We stop being as merciful when we don't reflect on the mercy of the Father. When we start thinking we deserve it, we find it really hard to extend mercy to others when we're not resting in the mercy of our Father. Loving your enemies as Jesus commands shows that you truly do believe that you are helpless without him intervening. It shows what the Beatitudes talk about. That because your reward is great in heaven, you, you may not be liked by everyone in this life. You may have enemies that you're called to love, but you respond differently because you have been changed by this God, by this Father of mercy. So I would even challenge you this morning to think about specifically one or two people that fit into the category described by Jesus. Begin today to pray for them often. Begin to go out of your way to love them and to do good for them. Do good to them. You remember the story of Jonah. Because he knew of the mercy of the Father, he didn't want to go to the Ninevites because he wanted the worst for his enemies. And so our prayer is that the knowledge of the mercy of the Father would actually drive us in the opposite direction. It would drive us towards those that we would call enemies. I pray we would run towards our enemies. We would love them. We would do good to them. This is the command of Jesus to us. As followers of Jesus, we operate according to a love that is unnatural. Let the love and mercy of the Father displayed through the Son cause us to love our enemies today. Let, let's show off the mercy of the Father today as we interact 
with those in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and those online that we don't even talk to, seeking ways to show off the mercy of our God.